But, uh, you know, over the winter, uh, evidently the coolant kind of leaks down, leaks out, what have you, and they haven't came to check the air yet because we've still been having some cold weather. So, evidently, the coolant's not, uh, not where it should be, but the air is on, it's just not cooling. And so, uh, but anyway, you've got, you've got uh, fans. So, this is all, there's all the uh, funeral home fans that we could find. But uh, I remember that used to be, that's all we had. But um, th- times have changed. Thank you for being here tonight. Again, I appreciate your patience. And uh, as we try to get some things set up, let's have a word of prayer. Father, I come to you and I thank you for all you do for us in our life. And thank you, Lord, for our time to come together tonight and study. And so I pray, Lord, that uh, your Holy Spirit will speak to our hearts. And, and God, I pray that we'll focus upon heaven. And Lord, I believe with all my heart, everyone that's here tonight is going to heaven. We're going to learn a lot about heaven and about what you have prepared for us. Father, thank you for what we have here. Thank you for our building we have. And I know at times we'll have an issue here and there. But we do thank you for a place to come and meet together. And uh, just help us to remember the ways that we've been blessed in the past. And you'll continue to bless us in the future. Thank you for all that you've done for us. I make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you have your study sheet, uh, tonight we're talking about heaven. Uh, Matthew Henry's uh, comment there, quote by him, he's who's, he's who's, He whose head is in heaven need not, to put, need not to fear to put his feet into the grave. If you're going to heaven, well, then you don't have to be afraid of the grave. You're going to put your feet in heaven one day, but then you don't worry about putting your feet in the grave because everything's going to be all right. What we want to do this session is uh, what will it mean for the curse to be lifted? Connie touched on that this morning about the world that we live in right now or live on right now is cursed, and it's been cursed ever since Adam and Eve sinned. And we may, we may think it's beautiful, and it is. God's given us a beautiful place to live, but... Uh, all in all said, it is a cursed place. And one day this curse is going to be lifted. And so we're going to see what will it mean for the curse to be lifted. If you'll notice, everything will be glorified. Everything will be glorified. Made perfect. Even nature itself. And that seems to me to be the biblical teaching about the eternal state. The eternal state. Where we're going. Uh, not mentioning where we're going right now, but wherever we are, it's going to be it's going to be glorified. Okay, uh, that's that. What we call heaven is life in this perfect world, as God intended uh, humans to live it. In other words, uh, God intended for this to be heaven when He first created the world. Is uh, the world. Not as we know it, but as Adam and Eve knew it. It was a perfect place. Sin wasn't on this earth then. And so he intended humanity to live where there was no sin. And when he put Adam in, when he put Adam in paradise at the beginning, Adam fell and all fell with him. But men and women are meant to live in the body and we'll live in a glorified body and uh, just went in there in a glorified world and God will be with them. And so one day we're going to experience, Martin Lloyd-Jones, one day we're going to experience a glorified place. Now that's the way the earth was to begin with, but sin brought a curse upon the earth. But one day the earth's going to be made new and we'll live once again on a, uh, in a glorified body on a glorified on a glorified earth. So what will it mean for the curse to be lifted? Well, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, Adam, or Satan, appeared to have ruined God's plan for a righteous, underlying humanity to rule the earth to God's glory. So God's purpose was for man to rule the earth. Man had to have dominion over the earth. But man sinned, and when he sinned, that... Satan thought spoiled God's plan, but we'll find where it did not uh, spoil God's plan, but it appeared to have ruined God's plan for the righteous, where humanity would rule the earth to God's glory. 
Immediately after the fall, God promised a redeemer, the seed of woman, who would one day come and crush the servant. That's Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where he promised the seed. Uh, the woman's seed would crush the serpent's head. Uh, the serpent would uh, crush the tail of her seed, but the serpent's head would be crushed by, by the Redeemer. Uh, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, Satan appeared to have ruined God's plan for a righteous, unaligned humanity. And immediately after the fall, God promised a Redeemer found in Genesis 3, verse 15. God unveiled His plan to send a fully human Redeemer who would be more powerful than Satan. That's, that was part of His plan. Send a Redeemer. Genesis 3.15 The Redeemer would be of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Judah, from the house of David. Now you've read this over the years in Bible studies and reading your Bible and Going to Bible school, you know who the Redeemer would be. It would be Jesus. We know what he would do. He would crush the, uh, the head of Satan. He'd be more powerful than Satan. Uh, theologian Anthony Hokema writes this, Since one of the results of sin had been death, the promised victory must somehow involve the removal of sin. So we know that by, by sin, death came into the world. And so if God's going to restore mankind unto his original state, pure and sinless, uh, glorifying himself, he has to do something about death. And so he's going he's to remove death. That just seems to be natural. That's a promised victory somehow involved in removal of death. Quote, for... For further since, further, since another result of sin had been the banishment of our first parents from the Garden of Eden, from which they were supposed to rule the world for God, it would seem that the victory should also mean man's restoration to some kind of regained paradise from which he could once again properly and sinlessly rule the earth. In a sense, there, uh, therefore, expectation of a new earth was implicit uh, in the promise of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And so man was to have dominion over, over paradise, and sin came into the world, and because of that, death came into the world. So God's intent was to man live on an uh, uncursed world, so God's going to renew the world. God's going to do away with this death for man. And one other thing that man would do, uh, man would uh, rule over uh, a new earth, just like God had planned for him to begin with. God did not sit idly by or shrug his shoulders at sin, death, and the curse. He did not relinquish his claim on mankind and the earth. Kind of keep that in mind. You know what Satan or sin did to the earth, what sin did to mankind? God just didn't wad that up and trash it and start over again. But no, the devil would have had victory then. So what he's going to do, he's going to, he's going to recreate man, and he does that at our salvation. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away, all things become new. But not only man, he's going to renew the earth. He's going to make a new earth. That doesn't mean he's going to destroy, as we would think, destroy, but he's going to purify and he's going to cleanse the earth. And it will be new and it will be new in that regards. And so he never relinquished his claim on mankind and the earth. No sooner did ruin descend on humanity and earth that God revealed his plan to defeat Satan and, reta and, and retake them, man and the earth, for his glory. Okay? So... When, when ruin descended on humanity and the earth, God revealed his plan, Genesis 3.15, to defeat Satan and retake them, man and the earth, for his glory. Our interest in the end times usually extends to the period immediately preceding and following the return of Christ. But God's plan uh, culminates after the first judgment. 
when King Jesus says, Come you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. That's Matthew 25, 34. And so God wants us to take our inheritance. So the question is, where's the kingdom? Where is the kingdom? Remember, he comes and he sets up a kingdom for a thousand-year reign. Then after, oh, and, and we're here with him on that reign. And then after that thousand-year reign, then you have a final judgment. And so where's the kingdom going to be? Well, it's where it's always been from the beginning. It's here on earth. Okay? So remember that. Where is the inheritance that Jesus speaks of? Just as the children of kings inherit kingdoms, and kingdoms consist of land and property, so earth is humanity's God-given property. So he has control of the earth again. And that would be given to us. Matthew 25, 34. Jesus is saying, This is what I wanted for you all along. This is what I went to the cross and defeated death to give you. Take it, rule over it, have dominion, enjoy it, and in doing so, share my happiness. And so man will be uh, serving God here on this earth, taking our inheritance. God doesn't throw away his handiwork and start from scratch. Instead, he uses the same canvas to repair and make should be make. More beautiful, the painting marred by the uh, vandal. And that's by Randy Alcorn. So God's not going to throw it away. Instead, he didn't start from scratch, but he uses the same earth to repair, make it more beautiful that uh, Satan had marred. The devil doesn't get any satisfaction or doesn't get the satisfaction of destroying his rival masterpiece, on the contrary, God makes an even greater masterpiece out of what the enemy sought to destroy. Satan wants us to give up on God, on our purpose and calling, and on our planet. And God reminds us, the one who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And that's 1 John 4, verse 4. Satan seeks to destroy the earth. Seeks to re, uh, Satan seeks to destroy the earth. God seeks to restore and to renew the earth, rule it, and, and hand it back to his children. God will win the battle for us and the earth. That's going to come about. Uniting heaven and earth. Look at this for a moment. God's plan of the ages is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That's Ephesians 1 verse 10. whole purpose is to bring everything together, heaven and earth together, put it under one head, and the head is Jesus Christ. All things is broad and inclusive. Nothing will be left out. This verse corresponds precisely to the culmination of history that we see enacted in Revelation 21. The merging together of the one separate realms of heaven and earth fully under Christ, uh, his leadership. If you would, look at, uh, look at if you would, uh, Revelation 21, just a moment, just to refresh your memory. That's our text for this entire study, Revelation 21. I want to read uh, uh, just eight verses there. Now remember what's going to happen. Um, Revelation 21, you have the merging of, this, of these two separate realms into one with one headship, and that's Jesus. Okay, Revelation 21, uh, verse 1. John said, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adored for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, 
and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death and sorrow or crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things are all passed away. And so you have the unifying of heaven and earth coming together, uniting heaven and earth. You remember the hymn, This is My Father's World, has a particular verse in there that we should remember. It says, this hymn, This is My Father's World, expresses the truth in the final words. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. United, coming together, okay? Just as God uh, and mankind are reconciled to Christ, so too the dwellings of God and mankind, heaven and earth will be reconciled with God. And so you have heaven and earth coming together as one, and Jesus Christ, the head over all, okay? A God... As God and man will forever will be forever united in Jesus, so heaven and earth will be or will forever be united in the new physical universe where we'll live as resurrected beings. And so we're coming together, heaven and earth, and we're living. We're living on this new earth, but it won't be known to us as a new earth. It'll be known to us as what? Be known to us as heaven. It'll be heaven. Heaven is God's home. Earth is our home. Jesus Christ, as the God-man, forever links God and mankind. Therefore, he links heaven and earth. Ephesians 1.10 demonstrates this idea of earth and heaven becoming one. You need to remember that verse in case you're sharing with anyone. Uh, and they'll say, what do you mean they come together? What do you mean heaven's going to be on earth? Or earth and heaven are going to be united? Well, Ephesians 1 verse 10 kind of demonstrates that idea where they are unified and become one. Christ will make earth into heaven and heaven into earth just as the wall that separates heaven and earth will be forever demolished. So when we think of, right now when we think of heaven and earth, what do we think of? We think of two different places. We think of this is earth and heaven is up there and we normally think it's up there. And very seldom do we give thought that one day it's going, to be, it's going to be here, but it's not going to be the same earth. It's going to be a new earth, and he's going to unify both of them uh, into, into one. Okay? There will be one universe with all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, Jesus Christ. One universe with all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, Jesus Christ. Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. Just read that. Revelation 21, verse 3. So God will live with us on the new earth, and that will bring all things in heaven and earth together. Ephesians 1, verse 10. Okay? God's plan is that there will be no more guff between the spiritual and the physical world. There will be no divided loyalties, no divided realms. There will be one cosmos, one universe, united under one Lord forever. Forever. Uniting heaven and earth. No more guff between spiritual and physical. There will be no divided loyalties or divided realms. There will only be one cosmos, one universe, united under one Lord forever. This is the unstoppable plan of God. It's going to happen. It's going to take place. When God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, earth was heaven's backyard. The new earth will be more than that. It'll be heaven itself. And those who know Jesus will have the privilege of living with him.
who will reign over the earth. Earth is the realm where God's glory has been most challenged and resisted. Think back during Adam and Eve. It's all about the earth being challenged by the devil. His creation being challenged by the devil. So, earth is the realm where God's glory has been most challenged and resisted. It is therefore also the stage on which His glory will be most graphically demonstrated. So, most of it will be demonstrated right here uh, on the new earth. By reclaiming, restoring, renewing, resurrecting earth and empowering a regenerated mankind to reign over it, God will accomplish his purpose of bringing glory to himself. He'll be right back where he started, okay? With, uh, with man purified, glorified, and then the new earth the same, and heaven and earth becoming one. Ultimately, Satan will be permanently dethroned. Righteous human beings first enthroned by God to reign over the earth from Eden, then dethroned by their own sin and Satan, will be rethroned forever with God. Revelation 22, verse 5 says this. There shall be, let me see, Revelation 22, there shall be no night there, no need of a lamp or light, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and forever. And so after Satan is cast into the lake of fire, within uh, God's people will reign forever and ever. Christ will become the unchallenged, absolute ruler of the universe, and then will turn over to his Father the kingdom that he's won. You know, uh, the Bible speaks of, uh, and then history speaks of when a, uh, when a um, uh, kingdom went out to fight a battle, maybe to take over another area. Uh, the son, not the king, but the son would go out, and, or one of the sons would be the leader, would be the main general of that battle. And when they would win that territory for the king, he would come back, he would be the... Uh, at that time, the son would just be the, the person that, that won that territory, but he would come and make an official presentation to the king. And so that's what you have here. Christ will become the unchallenged, the absolute ruler of the universe. And then what happens? He will in turn, he will turn it over to his father, the kingdom that he's won. And you can kind of picture that in your, in your mind. Let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, we're about to close with this part. 1 Corinthians 15. And verse 28. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And so he makes a presentation. This is what I've won for you through my death, through my resurrection, and I present it to you. And so the kingdom was won for the Father. Redeemed humans will be God's unchallenged, delegated rulers over the new earth. God and humanity will live together in eternal happiness forever, depending, forever depending on their relationships as the glory of God permeates every aspect of the new creation. I'm sorry, let me read that again. I misread it. God and humanity will live together in eternal happiness forever, deepening their relationships as... The glory of God permeates every aspect of the new kingdom. And this is the way history is headed right now.
Okay, we're going to stop right here just for a five-minute break. If you're thirsty, if you can get a drink of water and come back in here, I'm going to finish with a video, and I think you, uh, I think it'll be meaningful to you. So let's take about five minutes and how much she read God's Word and how she journaled and uh, the Bible verses she memorized. She was constantly reading and studying God's Word. And it made it so much easier for her to pass from this life to another life. And it made it more easier for him. But I thought it would help us to realize how important studying God's Word, meditating with God, knowing who God is, where we can know where we're going, know what that's like. And so if you would, uh, let's just watch this, and then we'll, we'll end with a, a prayer after this. It's not the whole funeral. It's just where he gets up and talks about Nancy. Okay? I am the last speaker. Uh, I have, uh, I hope you've... Uh, Appreciated this, I certainly have, just knowing these people, um, knowing my wife, knowing, having been in a, a front row seat. Um, you know, you can fool people who are at a distance, but when you live with somebody, and you've lived with somebody for 47 years, and you've known somebody, and that person has been the love of your life for 54 years since we were freshmen in high school, You can't be fooled. Uh, I know what I saw. I know the woman that I lived with, and she certainly wasn't perfect. She is now. I'm still not. Um, and you're still not, because you're here. <laughs> but um, I can tell you that this is real. Um, this is the life that she lived. And what happened in the last four years? I, I knew her so well. And her life was honoring to Jesus. And something happened when she got cancer and she started going to God's word, which she had done every day. But she did it with a new diligence and a new sense of, I want to know God and I want to honor God in this cancer she didn't want to waste her life. She didn't want to waste her cancer. She didn't want to waste anything that God had put into her hands. She had a huge view of God. And I knew that already. But I was not prepared for the extent of what would happen in these last four years. Um, the reality of a miracle in her life. And the interesting thing is, it's not the miracle we prayed for the most. It was a different miracle. You know, you pray for the miracle of healing when they keep telling you she's terminal and everything indicates she's terminal and she's had all these procedures and uh, all these, uh, the rounds of chemo and the rounds of radiation and all the surgeries. And then you pray that God would heal. And every night we would pray that God would heal her. But we would also say, but God, your will be done. I mean, there are some very wonderful people in history whose prayers have not been answered the way they were asking for. One of them is Jesus. Father, let this cup of suffering pass from me. But your will be done. Aren't you Glad God didn't answer that prayer as stated. What if he wouldn't have suffered on the cross for us? The Apostle Paul, three times I prayed that God would deliver me from my thorn in the flesh, some terrible physical disability that he had that was painful by all indications. We don't know exactly what it was. He says, three times I asked the Lord, and God said no. He says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. I want you to be weak, Paul, because 
I've given you this so that you would not be conceited because of all the revelations I've given you, and take, including taking him up to heaven and showing him what heaven was like. All of these things, God knew what was best for Paul, and God didn't answer that prayer to take away the thorn in the flesh. So if Jesus' prayer isn't answered at least in the way that it was phrased, take this cup of suffering from me, but because he added, your will be done, nevertheless, your will be done, then it, it was answered in the context of that because it was God's will for him to suffer and die on the cross for our sins. And it was God's will for Paul to suffer. So we knew every night when we prayed, we, we, we're not of the name it and claim it camp, you know, where we'll just uh, always claim God's healing. Always claim God's healing and you go, okay, just, would you just introduce me to a 120-year-old faith healer somewhere? And so we could sit, I could sit down and interview him for my book on evil and suffering? No, because they all die and they all die of something, right? Even if it's an accident, I mean, whatever it is, we all die. Some people are going to be alive at the return of Christ. That's going to be wonderful but so far in 2,000 years of Christian history, nobody has been alive at the return of Christ because he hasn't returned yet. And one day he will. But death is a reality and suffering is a reality. And we knew that. But we knew that God calls upon us to express the desires of our heart to him. And so the desire of my heart and Nancy's was that she would be healed. You know, she'd talk about her boys, her grandsons, and wanting to meet uh, the women that they would marry someday. She talked about wanting to be at their wedding. She, she talked about wanting to have great-grandchildren and see them and all that. And she, I have no doubt, will see them. She will probably have a better view of it than those of us who are still here on the earth. And... I often find myself, uh, as I live in a house where it just uh, shouts her absence, the uh, silence, um, I miss that laughter that everyone, I mean, was there anyone who didn't mention her laughter? I mean, I, I miss that laughter tremendously. And uh, we have this little double doodle named Gracie uh, that we got about a year ago after our um, dog Maggie died, our golden retriever. And people say, it must be hard coming home to an empty house. And I say, I don't come home to an empty house. I come home to a dog who is thrilled to see me, absolutely thrilled to see me. And it's a beautiful and wonderful thing. And if there's anybody in all history that could see their wife somehow in a dog, it's got to be me. <laughs> because of her love for dogs, it's like a residual part of her is there. And I find myself praying to the Lord in, in interesting ways that probably I never would have imagined years ago. It goes back to when my mom died in, in 1981 when Karina was just two and a half years old and, and um, Angela was just a, a few months old. But I found myself saying, Lord, is it okay if I ask you to give my mom a hug? Is it okay if I ask you to tell my mom something? Well, of course I know it's not okay to pray to my mom. It's, I'm not praying to Nancy, but I can pray to Jesus. He's the advocate. He's before the Father. I can, I can ask him anything. He's free to say no. Have you noticed? He is free to say no, but he knows my heart. So something happening with our kids, our grandkids, already I'm saying, well, maybe she already knows. Maybe you'll let her see but if you didn't, would you tell her from me what's going on? Because, uh, you know, she'd really want to know. 
And I don't think the people in heaven are disinterested in what's going on down on earth. The unfolding drama of redemption is happening here on planet earth. People in heaven are not uh, up there having no knowledge of what's going on down on earth. We know that. In Revelation 6, you have the, 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 uh, the martyrs. They've died. They have died for their faith. And they say, how long, O Lord? They're in heaven. They're saying to God in heaven, how long, O Lord, before you bring judgment on those who murdered us? Well, they actually remember they were murdered. Wow. I mean, how does that work? And we think, oh, well, people in heaven couldn't know about bad stuff. They can't see down on earth because they'd see a bunch of bad stuff and they wouldn't be able to handle it. Well, God is in heaven and he knows and can handle the bad stuff. The angels are in heaven. A lot of them are anyway. And they can see the bad stuff. And God's people who are in heaven, you know, heaven is not based, what makes heaven heaven is not ignorance of what's going on in the universe. It's perspective. It's seeing the sovereign God of holiness and love who is transcendent. Nancy did talk a lot about the attributes of God. We would read A.W. Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy, great book on attributes of God. Knowing God, J.I. Packer. Trusting God, Jerry Bridges. Desiring God, John Piper. Did you get a theme there of the titles of these books that she poured herself into her meditations on the Puritan book of prayers also called the Valley of Vision if you want to I, I, I think there's got to be some people who are thinking well wow she seems to have been really extraordinary to be able to face difficulty with the kind of perspective she did and I think what she'd want me to say is She's just a normal person who studied God and prayed to God and walked with God. And if you want that and you don't have that in your life, could I just suggest maybe turn off the TV and stop going to Facebook or at least not as much. There's nothing wrong with the television or with Facebook, sometimes it's borderline, but, you know, or, or the other things and Twitter and so on. But, but the point is, there can be good in those things, that's fine, but you've got to carve time out of your day to do what Nancy did every morning in God's word and reading great books and drawing close to God. And I saw my wife, who already was close to the Lord, transformed into a person who mentored me and discipled me from whom I learned in, in deeper ways than ever before. And so I would read in her journal and she would talk about how thankful she was that God had given her the cancer because he used the cancer to draw her close to him. So instead of, we were praying that God would take it away, your will be done. But meanwhile, she lived out what 2 Corinthians 4 says. These light and momentary afflictions are achieving in us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all, that far outweighs the afflictions. And she had afflictions. And they were serious. And they were difficult. And of course, sometimes she would feel anxious. Anybody would. But then she would speak into her own life, almost like the, the psalmist who would say, praise the Lord, O my soul, and let me forget not his benefits. So she would, you know, do the kind of self-talk where she spoke into her own life based on God's word and challenged herself. And as I read her journals, she has challenged me. And so I think one of the things that, um, of course, this isn't in my notes and I won't get to most of what's in my notes, but, but, but I think I just, more than anything else, if we could just look and say, this is a normal follower of God 
who, if we know one thing from this service, we know she loved football and she loved dogs and she loved people and she had fun. So isn't that fairly normal or something we would want? Or doesn't that even almost sound earthly? You know, well, not earthly in the bad sense at all. God made us for this earth. God has made us for a perfect earth. And she developed a perspective where, and this is something we worked on together over the years, even before she had cancer, where her reference points for interpreting life in this world under the curse were Eden and the new earth. Because Eden and the new earth are what God wants it to be. We live in the only brief period of time in all the history of the universe where we are under a curse. This is a temporary condition. This is not a permanent condition. And so I would read to her a number of times. It's somewhere in my notes. I have no idea where because I'm not going to go in order through it. Uh, but we would read from Isaiah 25. Let me find it here. I have too many quotations and so too many things that are indented to find it readily. But where, yes, here we go. Isaiah uh, 25, where it says, On this mountain, Yahweh Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. This is the promise of God. He will prepare a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wine. My compliments to the chef. Well, it's the Lord God who created the universe. How good is that meal going to be? On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Notice he doesn't say he will let death die a natural death. Oh, no. He will kill death. He will swallow up death forever based on the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. He will devour it. He will swallow it. He will consume it as a, a great lion consumes its prey and death will die and death will be dead forever and there will be no more suffering. There will be no more pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Behold, I am making all things new. I guess I didn't have to find it. Anyway, <laughs> uh, as Revelation 21 says, and then Revelation 22 says, there will be no more curse. He will lift the curse once and for all from this earth and his servants will serve him. And he will be on the throne of the new Jerusalem. And Romans 8 teaches that this old earth under the curse, one day it's going to end and the world is under groaning and suffering and pain, people suffering, animals suffering, awaiting the resurrection of God's children. One day, Nancy's body that's in a grave, like all those before her, all the people of God who have known him, some of whose bodies are not intact at all, their DNA is, is part of the ecosystem now, and God will bring that DNA, if that's how he chooses to do it, um, he's God. He doesn't need any means to do anything. But maybe he will. Just They found the DNA uh, in the Egyptian mummies, you know. Uh, so so it's, all, it's out there. He can just pull it all together. Resurrected bodies that we will live in forever. 
And we will look back at this life, at the sufferings that we have gone through, and we will realize, you know, they seemed so big at the time. And I don't minimize suffering. Some of you have gone through much worse suffering than I have, than Nancy has. I don't minimize that for a moment. But the God that we know is going to fix that problem, and he is going to fix it forever. He's a carpenter. Carpenters build things. He built this thing called the universe. And then it went wrong. It went wrong because it fell on the coattails of the primary inhabitants. Man and woman, the human race. And on the coattails of their fall was the fall of the animals, the fall of the universe itself. I, I kind of think astronomy is a hobby that when I see these galaxies colliding at the far corners of the cosmos, I feel like, you know, the entire universe that he invited human beings to actually rule over. For sure they were to rule over the earth, but it's like rule, uh, the earth capital planet of the perfect universe God created. And now it's gone wrong, terribly wrong. But he's going to make it right because carpenters don't just make things. Carpenters fix things. And the carpenter from Nazareth has an attribute that comes in very helpful with carpentry. It's called omnipotence. He can do anything, and he will. He will do it, and all will be made right. And so, do I miss Nancy? I miss her terribly. I cannot describe how much I miss her. But I know our relationship is not ended. I don't have kind of a, a hope. You know, the, the word hope biblically is very different than the way we use the word hope today. And I actually think we should try to look for different words. We got to qualify it somehow. Because, well, you know, there's the hope of the resurrection. No, this is the blood-bought promise of Jesus Christ. These aren't just wishful thinking sort of hopes. Well, you know, I hope it turns out this way. He died and rose from the grave so it would turn out that way. It's a promise we can bank on. And his promise is to his children, we will all live happily ever after. That is not a fairy tale. That is the blood-bought promise of God. It cost him the life of his son. Do you think that's a promise he's going to keep? It is. Absolutely. He is going to keep that promise. Let me read a few things that Nancy said in her journal, and I know you've been here a long time, but uh, I think you, I'd like you to hear from Nancy. Serving God in our suffering is the natural outcome of the level of trust which has been supernaturally infused into us by God through our study of God. It doesn't magically happen. You don't just sort of wake up one day with a big view of God. You invest time. You study. You read the right kind of books. You listen to the right kind of preaching. Uh, no offense, but you don't listen to Joel Osteen and prosperity and health and wealth gospel people. You listen to Spurgeon. You listen to the Puritans. You read uh, John Piper and J.I. Packer and A.W. Tozer and Jerry Bridges and Dane Ortland and Ray Ortland and anyone with the last name Ortland. And you get all the stuff that they say. And, and you feed yourself on that in addition to God's word, and then you develop a big view of God. And so she's saying, he supernaturally infuses into us a level of trust in him through our study of God. 
Knowing God causes us to have the perspective which ignites our hearts, Nancy says, and controls our actions. But we, in our complacent hearts, sometimes fail to study God. We have other priorities. We don't feel the need. And then when suffering and trials arise, we are ill-equipped to understand the good purposes God has for us in it all. Faith is trust in what you have come to know to be true. Faith is not instant. Faith comes from prolonged study. Faith comes from testing what you believe to be true. She says God always, always, and she underlines the second always, has my best interest in mind even when his way for me is painful, unclear, frightening, seemingly unfair, emotionally difficult, or mentally challenging. I need to trust, to believe that my God does all things well. She wrote, because I am not God, I should never question why things go the way they go. I am not omniscient. I am not all wise. I am not totally just. I don't even love myself nearly as much as God loves me. So why should I ever second guess God? I will be ready to die, she wrote a couple of years ago. When my time comes, because my shepherd will give me his joy, his peace, and readiness. My God will fight the battle for me. It will be his perfect ministering spirit who will carry me peacefully, jubilantly into God's arms. Spurgeon wrote, she's always quoting Spurgeon. If you don't know who Spurgeon is, Google him. And then read everything he wrote. What if, but he has about 26 million words in print, so it'll take you a while. What if we should soon be called to the heavenly realm Certainly there would be nothing to deplore in such a summons, but everything to rejoice in. Living or dying, we are the Lord's. If we live, he says, Jesus will be with us. If we die, we will be with Jesus. Nancy says, what could be better than that? Needing to trust in Christ and then choosing to do so, she says, results in God making a home deeper in my heart. My trust allows my soul to continuously grow in the presence of God's love for me. It is a deep and marvelous love. A few weeks before she died, she said, Randy, we've got to get out of this place. She meant this place under the curse. She used to say, she said it a lot. Whenever something truly bad and tragic would happen, she would say, the curse stinks. Randy, we've got to get out of this place. And one night when she was weary from the suffering, she said, Randy, please take me home. Well, we were in our house, so I knew she wasn't talking about that home. I said, I would take you home in a heartbeat if I could, and I would never come back, gladly. But it's not up to me, is it? It's not up to either of us. It's up to God. And, you know, I thought about it when she died I thought of the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16 where Jesus says the angels came and they took Lazarus to heaven. And I thought, you know, she got something a lot better than me taking her to heaven. She got angels taking her to heaven. And one morning she was writing her journal and I, I went to bed a lot later than her and so I got up later and so she would often tell me what she'd been thinking about writing. She says, I've been thinking about how wonderful it's going to be to meet angels. I mean, like, there's a fair chance that I've had a guardian angel. It's not absolutely certain that every single person does, but some people do, and so why not? Uh, and she says, what will it be like to meet the angel 
who's maybe been guarding and protecting me my whole life. And he'll fill me in on all the things I didn't know. And I think he'll be my friend. <laughs> so, well, anybody would be your friend, you know? Uh, and uh, she experienced that, which is a lot better than me taking her home. One of the things she said to me in the final weeks before she died, actually, she said it several times a few months ago, and she said it again. Shortly before she died, she said, Randy, thank you for my life. And I instantly knew what she meant. And I said, Nancy, thank you for my life. It wasn't just thanks for being my partner in life. Because God used us to breathe by his grace, by his Holy Spirit, to breathe life into each other. And our lives became inseparable. And now we're separated. Uh, and that's okay. It's a brief, temporary condition. And the great thing about it is the reunion will be so sweet. But above all, the union with Jesus to see him face to face. She wrote in her journal over and over again, anticipating being with Jesus. And eight months into her cancer journey, back in 2018, she wrote, above all, I am eternally thankful for the incredible growth in my heart spiritually. I honestly would not trade this cancer experience to go back to where I was, which wasn't bad, she says. And it wasn't. It was good. I believed and experienced God's hand on my life before cancer, but these last months have been used by God to propel me into a deeper understanding and experience of his sovereignty, his wisdom, his steadfast love, his mercy, his grace, his faithfulness, his imminency, his trustworthiness, and his omnipotence. I am learning that waiting on God is a gift. I am learning that my God loves me entirely and does only what is in my best interests and according to his glory. I am learning to trust God at a level which I never had before. When I begin to comprehend his attributes, how can I not trust God completely? Feelings of anxiety are still lurking. My test coming up in a few weeks. I choose to place my faith and trust in God for what the outcome of these tests brings to my life. I choose to trust that God, the omnipotent God, will bring my feelings into accordance with his will. God does all things well. And then she quotes a Puritan prayer as she often does. I won't read a couple of others to you, but I'll read this one. Listen to the beauty of this Puritan prayer. Uh, the Puritans, many times, they, they, they might have 12 children, nine or 10 of whom die at a very early age. They, they understood suffering. They, they didn't have antibiotics. They didn't have painkillers in any sense like we do. But listen to their love of God. O Lord of the heavens, my little bark sails on a restless sea. Grant that Jesus may sit at the helm and steer me safely. Let not my faith be wrecked amid storms and shoals. Bring me to harbor with flying pennants. Hull unbreached, cargo unspoiled. The voyage is long, the waves are high, the storms are pitiless but my help is held steady. Thy word secures me safe passage. Thy grace wafts me onward, my haven guaranteed. This day will bring me nearer to my home. They knew this world was not their home. Help me to convert every care into prayer. May the world this day be happier and better because I live. Uh, I think of Nancy when I think of those words. 
Let my mast before me be the Savior's cross and every oncoming wave the fountain of blood in his side. Help me, protect me, Lord, in the moving sea until I reach the shore of unceasing praise. She has reached that shore, and I look forward to joining her there, but only when the time is right. Meanwhile, I look forward to serving him and walking with him. Psalm 119.93, she talked about a lot in her journals. It says, all things are your servants, Lord. Here's what she wrote. All things are God's servants means everything in creation has been established by God and is being sustained by God. All things are subject to God's purpose and will. The benefit and delight I receive from this passage is profound. Nancy says, my cancer is God's servant in my life. He is using it in ways he has revealed to me in these verses and in many more I have yet to understand. I can rest knowing that my cancer is fully under the control of a sovereign God who is good and does good. She lists, and I won't read them, all the things she has been through. And wow, it's pretty remarkable. And then right when you think, Gosh, this is starting to sound depressing, she says. But oh, such blessings these four years have given me. My relationship with God has deepened more than I could ever have imagined. I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I trust him more. I cling to him more. I worship him more. I love him more. The Bible speaks to me more. The Holy Spirit's ministry feels more real to me. And then she lists the practical Blessings, And then she says, all the prayers of God's people, I genuinely feel them. And I think she would want me to say, all of you who prayed for her and people even all over the world who prayed for her, we received something from a group of persecuted Christians. I even hesitate to say where. Um, but in a place where there's severe persecution and we found out that in their gathering they were praying for Nancy. Now that humbles you. All the prayers of God's people, I genuinely feel them and I think she would want me to say, don't you for a moment regret the prayers thinking God did not answer them because she died. God answered your prayers Maybe not in all the ways, although there were lots of times along the way where even physically she felt better as for a time. And maybe he used those things to prolong her life, used the prayers of his people. But whatever he did, for sure he brought about something greater. And now the end of her journal, February 10th, difficult night, not much sleep, need to go to Adventist for disconnect and x-ray. Lord, please give me the strength I need. And then whenever she prays a prayer, she cites a scripture, the Lord is my strength and shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. And then her very last entry, February 28th, 2022, Randy and I had a very important consultation with Dr. Cohn. I told her that I didn't want to fight the cancer in order to give me any more time. And then she says, I am so relieved. And she underlines, so relieved. And honestly excited, I will see Jesus pretty soon. And exactly one month later, she did. So a thank you to all who visited her. A thank you to those nurses who came over and cared for her. Under Angela's direction but who came and just served and gave themselves, staying late into the night, um, in one or two cases, spending the whole night, and the visiting angels, and the dear people with hospice. And some of you, I think, are here, and I would just say I had converse, wonderful conversations with a number of you. And some of you know Jesus, and some of you don't. But let me say to those of you who don't know Jesus, Jesus used you in a beautiful way as his hands and feet with my wife. And I pray for you that you would come to know him if you don't yet. And finally, uh, I want to end with this. Um, 
the worship team is going to lead us in our final song. Some of you have noticed the absence of Paul Norquist. He was to be up here with Josh, but just was not feeling up to it today. Please pray for Paul. Um, But the worship team, and thank you for everybody on the team, is going to come up and lead us um, in a final song, Joy to the World. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Nancy's favorite Christmas hymn, because it isn't really a Christmas hymn. I mean, Christmas is essential to it. But it's about the return of Christ, when he will accomplish all that he planned, all that he built into that initial first Christmas and the coming of Jesus. Let me pray, and uh, then we'll finish with worship. One last song. Thank you, Lord, for those who brought meals, for the nurses, the the love, the prayers, the visitors, uh, for Josh Putnam, our worship leader today, who came over and played on his guitar songs and sang them to Nancy in her bed. Thank you, Lord, that in a time where people, some people just hate the church, that when you see the church, the body of Christ, carrying day and night and praying day and night for someone so precious as Nancy is to me, You cannot find it in your heart to ever hate the church, the body of Christ. You can only love the church as imperfect as we, the church, are. Thank you for drawing near to my precious wife in such powerful ways. Her deepest desire was to see you face to face. Lord, we look forward to that day, those of us who know you, and anyone who doesn't, Lord, I pray that even right now, you would draw their hearts to you and bring them to faith in you that they too could one day see you face to face and live together with God's people, including Nancy and Michelle Norquist and Aaron Seymour and her mom and my mom and so many others of God's people. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. On behalf of our family, I want to thank you so much uh, for coming today. It means a lot to us.